Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And since my granddaughter has already had her nap today and woken up, I can do it properly. It's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it is time for the Expert Council Q&A show. Uh, we have a great one for you today. First Expert Council of the Year 2018, uh, episode 2140. And here's who we have in the lineup today. Forget decaffeinated coffee. How the hell do we make the highest caffeinated coffee we can get with Nicole Sauce? We have Of Roads and Wetlands with Ben Falk of Whole Systems Design. We have What's the Deal with Dragon Chain? Is Disney going into the blockchain slash cryptocurrency world with Dragon Chain? From Newcastle member Ben Fitz, we have what to do when a new baby is coming as a prepper as far as what to supply yourself with from Mike and Sue Laprise. We have what to look for in a survival slash backpacking knife from Patrick Rorman. We have firearm stories when kids are involved with Dan Omen. We have thoughts on the Jeff Sessions decision about cannabis from me, myself, and I, your friend Jack Spierko. And my initial take on it may actually surprise you. Because why? Well, as my buddy Vin Armani would say, principles over preference. All of that and more in just a bit before we do that. Let's go ahead and hear from our new sponsor of the day. I didn't say two sponsors. I said the new sponsor of the day, didn't I? The new, Yeah, we're going to have one sponsor today because I have a bit of an announcement to go with it. I've been working with, with a fellow named Dan over at uh, ButcherBox for about a month on this deal for you guys. And it is a pretty outstanding deal. Here's how it started out. First, I got an email. I want to. He was, obviously, he's been hitting up podcasters. I know Joe Rogan uh, uh, supports ButcherBox, for instance, and uh, he said, "I want you to do a affiliate thing or whatever." And can I send you a box of meat? I'm thinking I'm not going to do affiliate with with a sponsor. I don't do that. Um, but let's start the relationship. Yeah, I'll take a box of meat. So he sends me this box of meat. Holy crap! The quality of this stuff is unbelievable. I, I, I can't say that I can't buy meat of this quality because that would just be inaccurate. But, like, I have to go down, like, there's a place here called Central Market. They have, like, top-quality meat. And i got to go in and, like, individually select my cuts. That's how I can get meat of this quality um, instead of, like, shipped to my house with free shipping. So I look at it, and is it expensive? No, it's not. I mean, you know, if you're buying ribeye, it's going to cost more than if you're buying you know, chuck eye, what have you, or ground beef or chicken breast, obviously. But the way they have it set up, when you pick out your box, it comes out to about six bucks per portion per meal. So that's not expensive for premium meat in any walk of life. And you can do all chicken, all pork, all beef or a combination. And so I was I was sold on the quality. So they're like, well, you know, we'll do this kind of commission deal for you. That would have made me probably a lot of money because you guys are going to like this this product. And I'm like, I, I don't really do things that way with sponsors. I like long-term relationships. I, I explain to them that most of my sponsors have been with me more than seven years. Let's work something out. And here's the deal we worked out. I get paid in meat. I get a box of meat every month. And uh, here's what you guys get. Whether you're MSB or not, you get $10 off and free bacon on your first order. And then, if you if you're MSB, you get ten dollars off and free bacon, and then all your subsequent orders for the rest of your life, you get ten dollars off. 
which if you want to, you could apply that $10 for, you got it, bacon. It's, it'll, it'll give you a bacon upgrade to your box. So it's basically for MSB members free bacon for life. But this is the best quality meat I've seen in a box. I mean, um, you know, I've had stuff come to me from like Omaha Steaks. They're like the biggest one. Please. Please. I almost want to say bitch, please. I mean, the quality is awesome. Absolutely awesome. Great company, ButcherBox.com. To get your discount, here's the deal. If you're not MSB, the discount code is TSP10, all capital letters to it, TSP10. That will get you free bacon, $10 off your first order, and then you pay what everybody else pays. MSB members, go to the benefits section of the MSB, log in, and you can get your discount code there because that only goes out to MSB members. Um, on that note, let me remind you real quick before we get into your calls. I am doing an MSB sale this week. The discount code is 2018-2018. I want to point something out. If you think ButcherBox sounds like a good deal, and it is, and you want top-quality meat shipped to your house, and who doesn't except vegans and vegetarians, and I'm not putting you down, I'm just saying, obviously, that you're like the only group in this audience that would be at least interested in this particular offering. Okay, so 10 bucks off a month. If you get a monthly box of meat, that's 120 bucks. And you can buy the membership right now for $30. You see what Jack does when he puts deals together for you. So consider joining the MSB if you're not a member already. If nothing else, maybe just for this new deal because it pays for itself so many times over. Oh, I forgot something real important about ButcherBox. Let's say you, like, you don't want the box that they have. You can make your own box. They have it all set up. It'll say pick three of these and three of these, and you can do that. You want to add a couple things to it, but you don't want to go to the next size box up. You can add some add-ons, right? Um, you can change it anytime you want. So let's say like this month you get a certain allocation, next month you want to change it, you just log into your account and change it before your next invoice date. And if you don't want one every month, they'll ship it to you every other month and you can cancel anytime you want. Put that with the MSB, man. You guys got a deal. Another announcement. Um, I don't know if maybe somebody reached out and shook the tree or something, but I did hear back from gunadapters.com today, and it looks like I'm going to be able to get you a deal on the gun adapters for you know the inserts for shotguns. So that'll be a cool thing for MSB members as well. I'm coming out of the gate strong in 2018. I want to bring in a good half dozen really solid partners. I'm going to go through the existing people in the MSB and kind of call out the ones that I don't think are being used or that aren't there anymore. Uh, and try to replace the ones that have fallen off. Some of these smaller companies just aren't in business anymore. I try to stay on it, but with as many discounts as I've negotiated for you, occasionally one slips by. Uh, I'm reaching out to everybody. I'm getting everybody's stuff updated. And a good half dozen is what I'm looking to bring in into uh, in, in 2018, plus anybody that's gone away if there's something unique, a uh, replacement form. Got another one I'll be announcing for you Monday. Um, I try to announce new members one at a time so they get mind share. But if you want to know who they are, they're already there. You'll see them listed as new in the benefits section if you want to see who it is. You can find out before Monday. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, your questions for expert council members. Remember, the way to make sure that you uh, get on the air if you uh, send a, a question in for expert council, do not, to repeat, do not uh, dump your life story out and then ask your question, right? Ask your question one or two sentences and then give details. Return, return, details, right? Uh, question, question mark, return, return, details. That's that's the format for all emails that come to me. Send that email to me, jack at the survival podcast.com. Put TSPC expert in the subject line. And please tell me the expert council member you have the question for. In the details, if it's something like permaculture related with design or something like that, 
please do include things like give some details, right? Like where you live, like what climate you're in, stuff like that. Anyway, first one doesn't really need to know where you live. It's a great question from my buddy David for Nicole's Sauce. And it's how do we make the highest caffeinated coffee we can make? I, I need to stay away from this idea, but it's going to be an interesting one. Nicole, take it away. Happy New Year, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from Living Free in Tennessee, taking a pressing question from David to get him through the darkest and busiest of days. This is from David. How can I get the most caffeine from my coffee? I enjoy a finely brewed cup of Java as much as and probably more than the average Joe. However... Sometimes I just need that extra kick in the ass to get past a droopy-eyed slump or because I want to feel all jittery and channel my inter- inner cornholio. Cold brewed slash iced coffee is not an option. If God intended for coffee to be served cold, then he would have allowed it to grow in the Arctic and Santa's elves wouldn't be slowly killing their overlord, who's obviously at risk of type 2 diabetes, by serving him that sugary hot chocolate crap. I am a modern-day road hobo and spend far too much time behind a windshield trying not to get road hypnotized. I pull over and brew my own as needed because truck stops are generally foul, dirty places, and I'm pretty sure the plague to end modern times will originate from one of them somehow. Help a cranky, coffee-crazed guy out with some options on getting that cup of condensed go-juice in dire need, David. Well, David, there are a few things you can do. To feel more enlivened by your brew, short of taking caffeine pills, which I generally don't recommend to people, if you need to add a bit more chip-chop to your daily cup, there are four things you can tune up. The bean, the grind, the roast, and the brew. First of all, choose a bean with higher caffeine. Stay away from all those yummy Arabica varieties and opt instead for Robusta beans. They have about twice or more kick in the keister than the Arabica. There is even a variety that claims to be 200% higher in caffeine than its Arabica cousins. So dig deeply into the origins of your coffee and avoid beans that grow high up in the mountains. Choose instead coffee beans from the lowlands. It may seem counterintuitive that lower beans bring higher energy, but Nature has a way of giving those of us who dwell deep in the hollers of this world a helping hand now and again. And then second, grind it like there is no tomorrow, because there might not be a tomorrow if you go careening off into the Alabama hinterlands one morning after not adding enough go get them to your morning draft. A finer grind gives the water more surface from which to extract caffeine, resulting in a stronger cup. It's that simple. And then number three, rethink that roast. That's right. A lighter roast will give you more caffeine, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. So when you roast a bean to dark roast, it becomes, it puffs out like popcorn. Like it it doesn't really pop, but it gets bigger. And that means that if a person is brewing their coffee by volume rather than weight, you're going to put less coffee into or less coffee bean into your brewing machine. And that means a lighter roast, you're packing in more because you're getting more beans, basically, because lighter beans are smaller and darker beans are larger. So if you brew by weight, then it doesn't matter because bean by bean, weight for weight, it's all the same. But the darker beans puff up. So 
If in a moment of desperation you find yourself digging into the dregs of a Mapco or Pilot coffee pot, go for that lighter roast because they probably did not give their coffee a good way. However, if you're making it on your own and don't want to leave your favorite dark roast in the dust, then tweaking your method is probably how to achieve caffeine nirvana. Load up on grounds in mini press. It's fun to stretch and then to test. 196 to 205. This method's sure to keep you alive. Hello, hello. You get it? Okay. So if you're going to keep with your dark bean and you're willing to change how you brew it, here's what you do. Drink espresso like it's coffee. Beautiful brew for your bunghole, David. Make sure the water water temperature is between 196 to 205. This will enable it to extract as much caffeine as possible and increase the amount of beans you use per cup. And Fill your coffee goblet with espresso. Now, there's been some argument here. Does a cup of coffee have more caffeine or a shot of espresso? And the answer is ding, 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 a cup of coffee. However, ounce for ounce, because an espresso shot's an ounce and a half, and a cup of coffee is eight ounces, ounce for ounce, if you have eight ounces of espresso, you are going to get more caffeine. So on those really hard days, David, just make a whole ton of espresso and enjoy a pepped-up perspective for a little while. Well, David... Thanks for the question, and I hope this helps keep you trucking as you traverse your early 2018. And TSP, you can find out more about me and all our adventures here in the Holler Homestead at livingfreeintennessee.com, or you can stock up on Holler Roast over at hollerroast.com. Jack, it's so great to have you back with us after your winter break. Thanks for all you do, and everyone, go out and make it a great week. Oh, that was great, that intro to it. David's a character, man. And uh, if you guys, any of you guys that were at the workshop know there is a bit of a, uh, I don't know, a fun, a, a fun tormenting between David and Nicole. <laughs> anyway, um, great answer from Nicole. Great stuff as always. Next, I have a question for Ben Falk on wetlands and access. Let's take it from Ben. Hey, Jack and all, Ben Falk with the Expert Council on Whole System Design with the question, a very difficult question, about um, the 30-acre parcel that has a very high water table, it sounds like, at least seasonally. Um, I don't think I have a very good answer for you or or an answer that you'd want to hear probably. Um, you know, when water tables are high – and you have to drain the water um, or build up. And draining the water is usually the only really affordable way to do it. But if you're not on a slope, you can't really drain the water too easily or at all sometimes. So it sounds like you're very flat, which is often wet, and you're, you, you have a wet, flat site. Um, those are really difficult because – if you can't drain them and you have to shoot the grades to determine if you can actually trench and drain, you know, and, and create some drainage for yourself, um, you have to build up for the road and the building, which can take just a ridiculous amount of material, and that gets really expensive. 
So, um, yeah, that's really all I can um, give you as far as information about the best way to build a road on flat, water-saturated grassland, which was the heading of the question. Um, you know, it's a good chance that you might not want to build here and just find a site that's more suitable for buildings and roads. But maybe it was really cheap, but that's why it was cheap. So uh, if it was, <laughs> sorry, I don't have a, a more optimistic answer for you, but hopefully that'll at least give you some baseline information to talk to your contractor. Thanks. In an event, in an attempt to try to do something here, the first thing I would say is, well, is it flat? I, I, I find it interesting how often people tell me land is flat, and I look at it, and you shoot the grades like Ben was saying, with like a laser level, and it, it's it, it's not really anywhere near as flat as you think. If you can find contours through such a property, it may be such that a road placed at the highest point you can on contour, and below that road, canal-like ponds and then plant both sides of the road with the most water-sucking trees you can, depending on your climate, something like cypress, something that lives in the muck and just pull and grows fast and just pulls up as much water as it can. Um, other than that, you're talking about a massive amount of fill to put in a fill road. And when you do that, one of the problems is if you're not really careful Where you do that, the fill itself can become a dam and make the problem at first worse on the upside, then worse on the downside, and then the whole thing collapses. So it would be the kind of thing that if that either one of those things you were going to throw as a Hail Mary at this, you really need to maybe get some level of engineering assistance with it. Because if you just throw a road in and throw some canal dams in, like I said, and then you email me in a couple of years and tell me I suck, I'm going to tell you, I didn't say to just do that. But those would be like the only other two avenues that I can think of. Because the problem with fill is it's extremely expensive. It's extremely expensive. But if we can kind of hybridize this and bring in a fill that we're excavating from ponds and let the drainage go into the ponds, then may, I'm going to say this really, really clearly. Maybe we have something, and it's going to have a lot to do with, is this seasonally wet? Is it always wet? Is the What is the subsoil like? Is it as flat as it sounds like it is, or is it flat in the general concept of the term flat? Um, but it's it's a difficult problem. That's why Ben was short and not real optimistic. These are the only things I can come up with. I might kick this one to Jeff Lawton and see what he can come up with. Anyway, next I have a question for our new cryptocurrency uh, expert, Ben Fitz. So Ben and Ben, are, you're hearing from instead of Ben and Jerry, Ben and Ben today. Uh, totally different question. Disney has a thing out called Dragon Chain, and it's not a new movie. It is blockchain technology. Ben, take it away. Hey, Jack, this is Ben with Crypto Gulch, and I want to say thank you for inviting me to participate as an expert on the council. Um, I know that Brandon has served as your cryptocurrency expert, and he's done a great job, but I understand that he has gotten busy. He's moving on with some other projects, and so 
there has been an opening, and I really appreciate you asking me to participate. One of the things I'm excited about is by participating as the expert, the listeners are going to help me learn about some new topics, some things that maybe I wasn't paying attention to or, or didn't even know existed. And this first question is a great example of that. So I want to thank the listeners in advance. Uh, you guys are coming up with some great topics. So the question came from Chris, and the question, is Disney putting out its own crypto coin with Dragon Chain? That's really interesting, Chris. I had no idea that Dragon Chain existed or that it was a part of Disney. And at first I thought, this guy's crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Started doing my research, and you know he does know what he's talking about. He's a little off, but but he's uh, right on tar- track. That Disney certainly did create this project called Dragon Chain, and although it isn't a cryptocurrency, it is a blockchain platform, and they even have their own Dragon token that people purchase and then they use to buy goods and services on the Dragon platform. So it's not um, a cryptocurrency in in the sense of I'm not going to go on Overstock.com and pay for products with Dragons like I can pay for stuff with Bitcoin. Um, it's not like that. Or it's not like going on you know, CryptoGulch. You can buy with a bunch of different cryptocurrencies. You can buy mining hardware from us at CryptoGulch. Um, Dragons will probably never be something that we can offer. It's probably only for internal use within Dragon Chain. So it's not really a coin. Those are tokens for use on the Dragon Chain. It definitely is a cryptocurrency project, and it's a blockchain project, and it's a really interesting one. So I I appreciate Chris um, asking about it. It was started by Disney, and as a result of that, it has a lot of like Disney's ideology into it where you know Disney is a company that's very interested in their intellectual property and so one of the main applications they see for this is intellectual property security and things like that um, but what it is Dragon Chain is actually several different things one of the main things that Dragon Chain is is it's a It's a blockchain platform for businesses. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to make it easy for businesses to create blockchain applications, to create smart contracts, and to use existing programming languages that they know, that their developers know, without having to learn a new smart contract language. So they can code in Java or they can code in Python, and they can write smart contracts. The system also doesn't require these companies to spin up their own servers. Basically, the server architecture is provided through Amazon, AWS, and eventually they're going to deploy it in Google as well. And you simply pay for those services using the Dragon tokens. It's like a cloud service, you know. And so all of that is provided to help make it really easy. In addition, you also can do, um, they, they have libraries of smart contracts. So they're going to have essentially example smart contracts that you can 
go and use and you can modify to create your own smart contracts. And then they're going, those smart contracts are going to allow you to use any cryptocurrency language. It's currency agnostic, meaning you could write those smart contracts for Ethereum or you could write those smart contracts for, you know, a, another cryptocurrency. Um, I'm not 100% sure on the smart contracts thing. I'm kind of weak on it. So I don't know if all cryptocurrencies work with smart contracts or not. I, I don't know if they do. Um, if this allowed any cryptocurrency to use smart contracts, that's pretty cool. Because then you could just write one for whatever your favorite currency is to help them, you know, get exposure. Um so another aspect of Dragon Chain that's kind of neat is they also have an incubator, and the incubator allows people to who 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 want to set up their own applications or their own businesses to apply to the incubator, and if accepted, then the incubator gives them access to tools and resources within Dragon Chain. So they get access to legal experts, technical experts, marketing, and economics because we're talking about cryptocurrency as well as they get to work with the other vendors within the incubator and then they're going to help them actually get exposure for their products as well i believe usually in incubators you also can get funding and i believe that the way this works is that all of the people that purchase the dragons in the in the dragon chain ICO, those people can actually use those dragons to invest in uh, the businesses in the, in the incubator. I think that's the way it works. Um, so it's really cool. There's a lot of cool aspects to it. It was a Disney project, but it's not a Disney project anymore. They've spun it off. It's an open source project, so the software is being open sourced, so that way they have a lot more eyes looking upon it, and they can really fix bugs and things like that. And then Dragon Chain itself, they now have essentially a company, and it's and that company is uh, they they receive 20% of the ICO, so they receive 20%. And what that does is that allows them to basically pay for the salaries and things like that of this team of developers and marketing and thing, and legal that they have working for them. So it's really a cool project. I'm really glad, Chris, that you mentioned it to us. Um, it is one of the examples of something that's kind of confusing. Sometimes people think of crypto as a currency, and, and not all crypto is currency. As a matter of fact, most crypto... You know, blockchain is going to be in everything we do. It's going to be more prevalent than the Internet. So, you know, it's going to be in everything we do in, you know, maybe not maybe not three years, maybe not five, five years, but probably in 10 to 20 years. You know, blockchain is going to be everywhere, and so many industries are going to change to adopt blockchain. So it makes sense that a company like Disney is looking at blockchain. Um, and it's really cool what they're doing is because they're enabling other companies to get involved in blockchain. And so I'm really interested in it. I'm going to do some more research. It's it's dragonchain.com. And uh, thank you, Chris, for asking that question. I hope I did a good job with my first time on the expert council.
I, I think some of these things that we're seeing come out of the uh, blockchain technologies that aren't exactly open exchange currencies, but more like internal currencies, right? So uh, to me, what Dragon Chain is is these internal tokens act as a currency only within the ecosystem and are not traded outside the ecosystem. So, for instance, you can look at something that's not quite that. Um, Augur would be a cryptocurrency that's not really that, but it's designed to be that. So Augur um, is designed to work inside basically a predictions market, which is basically a way of saying uh, groupthink betting. And it works inside the Augur system, A-U-G-U-R, but it's also traded freely outside the Augur system, and due to that, people may be willing to take it as payment. I certainly would take Augur as payment for MSB, for instance, because I can exchange it uh, for other cryptos easily on an outside exchange. Swarm City tokens would be another almost like a hybrid. It's designed to work in the Swarm City system. And what Swarm City seems to be doing smarter than the Augur project is inside Swarm City, if they can get the damn thing working, really working, um, you... You can only use Swarm City tokens, where Augur has allowed the use of Ethereum and Bitcoin, I think, is the two other ones. Like That doesn't make sense to have your own ecosystem and then let outside currencies be used as a means of exchange. So Swarm City has created like that similar internal thing, but also exchanged outside the system and therefore a true currency. Where these types of percolators, incubators, call them what you want to, or projects... There's a value to the token, but only within the ecosystem, and you can only get the, the token within the ecosystem through whether it's purchasing or activities or execution of contracts or what have you. But in the end, what you're seeing is the, the truth about money, that money is a, is, is a fixed component or actually a variable component within an economy that allows for a viable, non counterfeitable means of a ledger of accounting value for value exchange whether that be through to, uh, services rendered charity it doesn't really matter payment for, for services labor uh, product it doesn't matter that's all money really is is a, a system of accounting for the exchange of value and then, then the value of the individual unit becomes subjective to many things and many different market forces. And the more closed the system, the more stable the value to a degree. Because if the system degrades, then the value is valueless. <laughs> anyway, maybe deeper than we need to go economically there. But great first answer by Ben Fitz. Next up, I have a question for... You know, new baby's coming, and you're a prepper, and you want to prep for the baby and the baby's future. Mike and Sue LaPreeze, homeschoolers and uh, just people extraordinaire, give us an answer on that one. This is Michael and Sue LaPreeze with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, TSP community. Today's question comes from Kenny. Here's what Kenny asked. My question is, what are some good baby basics as far as items and knowledge to have when having your first child as a preparedness-minded dad? Details. So my wife and I have had our first child in November, and we couldn't be more excited. As someone who is prepped-minded, what are some things I should possibly be looking into buying other than the normal baby items? Obviously, I'm new to this side of things, so any advice will help. So, well, Kenny, we're going to give you some advice. 
So what are you going to buy first? First thing I'm going to buy, if I'm prepared and minded, first thing I'm going to buy is life insurance. That was a really comforting thing to know that you had life insurance as a stay-at-home mom that would take care of us if anything happened. Yes. So, uh, Kenny, you know, we talk about survivalism, modern survivalists, and the first thing that Jack will talk about in terms of being prepared, the first thing is being financially prepared. So getting your finances in order is a real key. So budgeting. So some of these items that we're going to talk about aren't, aren't things that you need to buy, but there are things that you can work through. Some of them you have to buy. Some of them it's just a matter of it's a mindset. So getting your finances in order, living beneath your, your means, uh, putting aside a $1,000 as an emergency fund in case of emergencies. As I mentioned, life insurance was the first thing. So when you're... When you first get married and you don't have kids, I always like to look at that as like, it's like you're dating, except you go home together. But once you have a child, <laughs> the, everything changes. The whole world changes. And so uh, we're just experiencing that again. Uh, our eldest son and his wife, uh, three weeks ago, just uh, brought into this world our second granddaughter. Yeah. So along with the life insurance and having a really good budget, Michael also had long-term disability insurance for years that we never used, and a couple years ago, we used it. And it was so nice to have that backup. And it allowed our life to, in spite of the medical problem, to just kind of stay the same. And it was really good for the kids to have that stability also. Yes, yeah, so I had a medical condition back in 2013 that required surgery. And um, we had long-term disability insurance so that when I um, left work to deal with the condition, um, we still got paid. And so all the bills were covered. So we didn't have any stress about uh, how we were going to make ends meet while uh, I was out of work. Yeah. So the other thing is an agree- agreeing together. It's really important to figure out how to agree together, how to communicate really well together. And um invaluable thing to do. And one of those things you have to agree on is how you spend your time. You talk about budgeting money and what do I need to buy, but you also need to budget your time. And one of the reasons we decided to be a stay-at-home parent on my part was that quality time that you have by having one person in charge of that scheduling that time. What are we going to do in the evenings? What Are we going to play games? Are we going to make gingerbread houses? Are we going to, what are we doing tomorrow night? We're chopping up a deer <laughs> and processing it. So it's um, all those time savers allows you to spend really good quality time together. That big trip to Disneyland isn't where the really cool stuff happens in a family's life. It happens by accident because you spent time together. And that, there's also an expense that um, being a stay-at-home mom, you might think, oh, how do you give up that job? But you have to consider all the costs of the job. And especially childcare, it's so expensive. Like more than three thousand dollars a year just goes to childcare. And then another thing that um, you can save money by planning ahead is don't get sick. You know, be um, really good at eating healthy foods yourself. So you're feeding your baby healthy food, and so you're not going to all those wellness checkups because you only need them for a vaccine. And uh, you know, we don't feel like you need that. So. You can skip that by eating well, less trips to the doctor, you're going to save more money. The next thing, reusable life. So saving money, we do a lot of canning. We, uh, as Sue mentioned, tomorrow we're processing a deer. A free um, deer. Yeah, a free deer. My son-in-law uh, 
got a deer and got actually he, he tagged out his limit and just delivered a deer to us today that we'll be processing tomorrow. And so we get a lot of free stuff because we accept free stuff. And people know that. And if we don't use it, we pass it on to somebody else. So be an acceptor of a free deer or next week we're getting citrus that somebody picked. So, you know, in the reusable life, when somebody's getting rid of something good because they got too much, say, oh, I'll take that. And then I'm going to share my citrus with the neighbors next week. So we want to be um, really diligent with how we spend our money. And it's really easy to cost compare. So like using diapers for an example. $500 for cloth diapers, which pretty much lasts you a lifetime. you got to buy some special detergent or $1,000 a year for Pampers. And it seems like, oh, that's a no-brainer. I'm going to get the cloth diapers because they're half price. But if you spend all that money on the cloth diapers and you go with the Pampers and, and then you spend that money twice, and it's just really expensive. So that goes back to being in agreement, talking about what's our lifestyle like. Can we really... Um, do cloth diapers because it's a commitment that Pampers is not. And so you got to think about that. And a good way to find out how to like save money on early childhood stuff is a, um, a thought called crunchy moms and you Google crunchy moms and you'll find all these blogs and you find one you like, and it's lots of young moms who are trying to eat healthy and be organic and natural and do really good, healthy things for their families. One of the other things that we do in preparedness is we um, make most of our own cleaning products. So I would highly recommend Erica Strauss uh, getting Erica Strauss's book. Yeah. Yes, uh, that was one of the things that I would recommend. We make our own cleaning products. We make our own laundry detergent. We make our own toothpaste. We save lots of money doing that. So we really work at avoiding paper products. They're expensive. You can save a lot of money by not using them. So another way to save money with a baby. Except toilet paper, except, I want to say. Yeah, we totally use toilet paper yeah. and not two sheets. <laughs> um, so breast milk is really cheap. It's totally free. But mom has to be reduced stress, eating really healthy, and um, it's the best thing to do, but it's not always easy. So it's really important if you're going, okay, we're going to breastfeed because it's going to save us money and it's really good nutritionally, and then you struggle with it, get help. Go ask somebody for help. Let's talk about asking for help. The therapeutic life. So this is the third the third rung that we're looking at here is um, how do you manage your new lifestyle? So things have changed. Now you have a child. Um, friendships may change. So there's a change in your life. And when there's a change in your life, changes in seasons, sometimes lots of things change. So if you've got a lot of friends who don't have children, what you're going to find is just naturally you're going to start gravitating to people who have kids, especially kids that are your kid's age. Yeah, and so if you're homeschooling, a lot of the grown homeschoolers who are now homeschooling their kids that are preschoolers, they're ready to find their tribe. So they're setting up these homeschool preschool things where they get together at the park and they go on nature walks and do all this fun stuff. So you can get started right away in a homeschool group. You don't have to go, oh, my kid's not five yet and we're not eligible for whatever. You know, start a group or find a group that has that because it's those friendships where you're going to ask the questions and get the conversation and get the help that you need. Yes, yeah, so, so I would talk about intentional connections, finding those people, to so be intentional about connecting with other people that are in your same 
situation. Um, one of the other things to be intentional about is getting a night out. So I would say one of the healthy things is is having somebody to babysit your child uh, when you you're ready to do that. You can share that with you, a friend. Yeah, we've traded off babysitting with other couples where we go out one Friday night, and the next Friday night we're watching their kids, and they would go out. Yeah, so date night's really good. Don't don't pin your whole life on it. Sometimes it gets really hard, and you go a while without one. You'll survive. Yep. And let, finally, we want to talk about educational resources. So you've got a newborn. Um, but don't wait until they're five years old to start thinking about their education because you're going to blink and tomorrow morning they're going to be ready for, for school. Yeah, so I started researching when I was pregnant with my first kid. And um, one of the things I really loved is the Montessori method. There's a lot of information online about it. You can go read up. There's free stuff. So really Montessori can take you to about eight years old, almost free then you're going to want to research homeschooling styles and opportunities. You're going to want to explore nature. And, uh, well, one of my favorite Montessori uh, websites is Carrots Are Orange. Super cute, inexpensive, What's sometimes free. Carrots Are Orange. Um, resources that you're not doing printable workbooks and buying them over and over again. And then finally, uh, read stories. So use the library and get books inexpensively. We look at, like, the Caldecott Award-winning books. We Eric look at the- Carl. Yeah, uh, the um, classics. So we look at good quality books, and you can get them from the library at no cost. And playing games. We start when the kids are really little with patty cake and peekaboo, peek-a-boo yeah. and uh, guess what? And going through those things, and then as time goes on, obviously the games just naturally evolve into the more and more complex games. With our 10- and 11-year-old, now we're playing the Settlers of Catan, and we play Ticket to Ride. And there are other games we play. We, we spend uh, a lot of time playing games. It's great social activity for us to spend with our kids. And it creates uh, quantity time that leads to quality time. So right. you don't get, my, my opinion is you don't get quality time uh, without a quantity of time. Because there are serendipitous moments that come out that are just those key moments that you have uh, that you can't plan for. They just happen. Right. The random question that really tugs at your heart and helps you understand your child better. It takes time to do all that. So it's it's interesting to think about the stuff, and the stuff is an easy checklist. I can make this list and check the boxes, but the relationships, the really key element. Remember, your child didn't ask to be born. You wanted them. So live your life like you wanted them. So this has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com for the Expert Council. Back to you, Jack. Great stuff from Mike and Sue on that subject. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's interesting to me just the way you view things differently as you uh, you graduate from parent to grandparent. They kind of, you know, mentioned that there. And they're also continuing to, to you know, bring children to their home through adoption. But, uh, you know, you, you do think, see things a little, I think a little more clearly. I think you get a little like a, like if it was a video game, like when you became a grandfather in a video game, you'd get a whole ass load of like wisdom bonus points or something. It's like just overnight, like, oh, shit, this is easy. Um, I, I was telling Dorothy about some advice for our son with dealing with his, our grandson, and I was like, why didn't I know this when he was that age? I mean, it's so much easier. Uh, it's just like, it, you know, it's experience, but it's also like being able to take a step back and think a little bit more clearly without being emotionally attached. And on that, what I, one of the, what I'm kind of honing in on that is something that seems very, you know, very mundane and blasé, which is insurance. Um, I, I've met people that 
let's say the guy is the only worker in the family. The wife doesn't have an income. And they might have a little tiny bit of insurance on her, but really they have a huge amount of insurance on him because he's the income source. And I'm like, well, what, you know, do, do you not see the value in what your wife provides to your family? Because how are you going to go out with that big, high-earning career every day if there's no one to look after the kids? And so, I mean, having insurance, I think as a married couple, first of all, even before you have kids, when Mike like said you're like dating, you still need insurance. But once you have kids, like you have to ramp that up. And the best time to get insurance is when you're young. And I, I recently had a question on whole life that I just punted. Uh, I might do it next week. I don't know. It depends on what comes out. But basically, here's a short thing on whole life. I don't do whole life. And I never will. And people are like, well, what about when you get older and you can't get insurance anymore? Blah, blah, blah. I have term to 90. I have term to 90, and it's dirt cheap, and I got it when I was 24. And at some point, if I decide there's no value in it for me anymore, I'll just stop paying it. But if I need insurance till I'm 90, it will be dirt cheap when I'm 89. You know, I mean, so just pay as little for insurance as possible. There's no such thing as an insurance company that doesn't pay a death benefit. They don't stay in business. But have of all, you know disability and all that stuff fine, but life insurance because when you're gone, the only thing that the survivors can do is go on without you. But how hard that is is in direct proportion to we're out of the emotional concept right now, right? We're we're down to the the the, the just flat out I got to get through life is the resources they have. And, I mean, putting it really bluntly, I had this boss I really didn't like when I was younger. I liked certain things about him, didn't like other things about him. But he, he said a few things that were true. And one of the things he always said is, life is like a shit sandwich. The more bread you have, the less shit you have to eat. And there, there's some truth in that. And money's not everything, but when you choose to bring life into the world, ensuring your life financially so that if you're not there to provide for them, they can be provided for, It's totally worth doing. And I've seen people that didn't do it. And I've seen people that... I have one friend who passed away years ago. He's a good guy, but I kind of feel like he was a complete prick about this. And I had actually talked to him about it, and he said he didn't want to be worth more dead than alive to his wife. And he passed away, and he she thought he had life insurance because they didn't talk about their finances. They kept everything separate. And it turned out he had life insurance, about $30,000 worth, uh, only because work provided. He had none of his own. And uh, they had just put in a swimming pool, an in-ground swimming pool, that they owed about $30,000 on. And she was at least able to make that debt go away. But in spite of the fact he was a good friend, I just feel like he was a prick there. And at least their child was fairly well on in life, uh, not gone from the house, but like late into the high school years. So it wasn't like, you know, having a five-year-old, you're trying to figure out how to take care of or, or what have you. But man, don't, don't leave that hole. I mean, if you look at the modern survival philosophy that's 10 years old now, uh, pragmatic things like insurance was part of the original one. And, and there's a reason. So along with all the other great stuff, I just wanted to add that. Next, I have a question for Patrick on backpacking slash, uh, you know, uh, survival knives. Hey guys, this is Patrick with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Christopher. He says, Jack, please give this to Patrick. Would an Ontario knife company, Old Hickory Knife, make a decent survival and or backpacking and hunting knife? 
I have one of these knives, and I got it from Amazon for all of $15. My only real issue is the handle, and I feel I could easily enough replace it with something a bit nicer, knowing full well I'm putting a $10 saddle on a $5 horse. I like these knives because they're easy to sharpen, hold a decent edge, cut well, and are dirt cheap. I do not want something that is tactical, but just a fun project that I would hopefully produce a decent end product. Attached are a few shots of my knife. Well, Christopher, um, you pretty well answered your own question to some extent. It is a good, decent knife, easily to sharpen and will hold an edge. My main concern with it would be more of the size of the knife and whether or not you want to pack it around. You mentioned uh, a backpacking, hunting, or survival type knife. This would be a great knife. I would use it more for, say, like butchering or something around the kitchen. I think it would be a great project to go ahead and remove the handle that's on it and put something nicer on it. I personally would not want to carry a knife like that in my backpack or, you know, on a on a hiking trip. I have a friend that's a hunting guide, and he said one of the telltale signs of a new guide is you see him with his 10, 12-inch knife strapped to his side. This guy uh, routinely takes people out to kill big elk and uses a knife that has about a 3- to 4-inch blade on it. Everybody thinks they need a, a big knife, and where they have their place, most of the time... Most of what you need is a blade between three and four inches long will do anything that you need to do. Now, I just got fun, I just got finished up uh, processing our bull, and there were definitely some cuts on it that I wish I had a longer blade, but I did most of the work with my uh, Ranger Drop Point Hunter knife, and I don't know the exact length of blade, but it's about four inches of blade cutting edge the big thing about like a backpacking knife is ounces make pounds and you definitely don't want to be carrying any more knife than you really need so if you're going to be out backpacking even uh, like Dixie's doing hiking the Appalachian Trail or the PCT there's really not too many times that you're going to need a knife the size of the old hickory the places that you're going to really uh, find a use for a knife such as that is where you're cutting large slabs of meat or um, someplace where the extra blade length makes a difference. So while I think it's a great knife and great to use around the house on different projects, I personally would not carry a knife that size for backpacking or hunting. I would keep a knife like that for around the house or, you know, butchering, things like that, where I might need a little bit longer of a blade. So I appreciate the question. If anybody else has any questions, feel free to send them in to Jack. Also, I thought I'd mention, I believe I have three TSB Val knives left, if anybody's interested in one of them. Um, when these sell out, they're probably not going to be available again for quite some time. So if anybody's interested in that, 
be sure to shoot me an email, patrick at mtknives.net. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You know, I'd, I'd kind of agree with that. Now, if you want to take one of those knives and, and, and play with it, go ahead. I've made all kinds of stuff just to make it. And I think we learn from that and we experience it and maybe it looks really cool and you know, maybe we're just proud of our work or maybe we just learn something. I mean, that's, that's all fine. But when it comes to practicality, I, I think smaller is in fact more. Um, in most instances, um, I've, I've shot two deer and a hog or actually processed two deer, shot one, just had to process another, uh, two deer this year and a hog. And I did, Almost everything with basically a two and a half to four inch knife on all three animals. It, it, you just don't need that much. Now, where I do like longer blades, um, if you're going to be doing chopping or things like that, but I think if you're going to be doing chopping in, 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 in the bush or something like that, you're better off with the hatchet. I think it's worth, you know, he said ounces makes pound, but I think you're kind of better off with the weight of like a hatchet or a tomahawk uh, for that type of purpose. That's That's what those tools are for, and knives really ain't for chopping. Um, but then butchering, he kind of alluded to that. Like if you're when you're taking a big piece of roast that you're going to cut steaks out of, yeah, you want that long cutting surface, but that's not usually something you do in the in the bush. And I guess the other place would be, and I, I really wouldn't like a knife like this for it. But if you're doing if you're filleting large fish. You need a, a long blade to do a good job filleting. I'm talking big fish, right? But that's not the kind of thing. You, you don't go catching freaking mahi in the bush, right? And, and you'd want a more flexible blade for that. But I don't have a problem with the idea of the project. I think you should do the project because you want to. It, whether or not you'll end up determining that that's the blade that you want to carry around all the time is another thing. And you might. It depends on what you're doing. I mean, we say ounces make pounds, but if all you got with you is a knife, it doesn't really matter. If you're actually backpacking with a significant amount of gear, all of a sudden it starts to matter more and more as you go up in material. Uh, next up, I have a question for Dan Omen uh, on firearm storage in the home with guns being able to be ready if they're necessary for defense when you got little toddlers running around like ninjas finding stuff they ain't opposed to be finding. Dan, take it away. Hello, TSB listeners. This is Dan Omen answering your questions on law enforcement-related matters. Today's question comes from Jared. Jared wants to know how to store a firearm in your home, keeping it safe from toddlers while still having quick access to it in an emergency. Jared provided some details. He said that he has two toddlers that can be, quote, like ninjas in the night about finding things they ought not find. Jared has a 12-gauge shotgun he kept loaded under his bed before children, but now all the guns are locked and safe, but they would be pretty useless in a time of need. Jared also says a high shelf in the closet seems pretty safe, but it still makes me pause and wonder because, as most parents of toddlers know, they can get into unimaginable amounts of mischief within 30 seconds. Jared, I'm not going to tell you what you should do, but I will give you a couple things to think about. But ultimately, you need to decide what is best for your family and your situation. Jared referred to having a shotgun in his detail, so we'll start there with a shotgun and then get into handguns. Before my police department switched everyone to M4s, those of us who could qualify with a shotgun were issued a Remington 857. 
every day on patrol, I would have my shotgun with me, and it would be kept in a condition known as cruiser-ready condition. The cruiser-ready phrase comes from the condition in which the shotgun is stored in a police cruiser or a patrol vehicle, and that is having a loaded magazine tube, but an empty chamber where the action is forward so the ejection port is closed. This puts the shotgun in a condition where it can quickly be put into service, but really only by someone who knew intimately how to operate a shotgun. In order to get the shotgun to fire in that condition, you have to press the action release to pump the action and load a cartridge into the chamber. And I've seen grown adults who were not familiar with shotguns struggle with this. So the idea is that if the shotgun were to fall into the wrong hands in the course of duty, that the person just picking up the shotgun, I mean, everyone's seen in the movies that you you just pump the shotgun and fire. Well, it won't do that because you have to press that action release in order to charge the slide. And by the time you're fumbling with that, figuring out that, oh, this thing isn't working, hopefully the officer has had ample time to react and has regained control of the scene. So that pump action is going to be completely stuck in place, unable to move without pushing in that slide release simultaneously. Jared, when you say you have toddlers, I'm thinking around three years old. That's kind of the image I get when I hear toddlers. So let's say your toddlers at three, maybe even four years old, manage to drag a stool or a chair into your closet, and they are able to scale up to the top shelf and access your shotgun. They will not have the strength or the motor skills to press the action release pump the action, making the shotgun loaded, and then deactivate the safety and firing the shotgun. It's just not something easily done without strength, a little bit of skill, and practice. Conversely, with a little bit of motor skills, strength, and some practice, you can get very fast at taking the shotgun from cruiser ready to action ready. But since your children sound quite precocious, we can take it a step further without compromising too much accessibility here. Let's go back to the patrol car concept here. In the patrol cars, the shotguns were stored in the cab of the police car up front in a rack. And there's a locking device on the rack, and you have to push a secret button to unlock it and then pull the shotgun out. And if you don't remove the shotgun from the rack within a small window of time, the locking mechanism on the rack will trigger and lock the shotgun back in. There are similar locking mechanisms that are sold that you can get on Amazon. In fact, I'll send a link to Jack, and maybe you can post in the show notes. I don't have personal experience with the model here, but it's just for example purposes where you can see what I'm talking about. But basically, it's a long gun mounting rack. You can mount it on a wall. You can mount it in a ceiling. You can pretty much mount it anywhere. It has the same concept where you hit a combination of buttons or this one here that I'm sending a link for actually has an RFID chip in it where you can slide a card over it. So if keeping your shotgun in cruiser ready and on a high shelf just still doesn't feel good to you, I'd definitely get the rack system and you're still going to be able to have quick access, but it's unlikely that the children are going to be able to defeat the lock on the rack and defeat the safeties that are in place keeping a shotgun in cruiser mode. As far as handguns go, if you have one that is not an everyday carry gun, so this is one that you're leaving back at the house all the time, you could leave a magazine in the gun, but not chamber around. So just like with a shotgun, it would be extremely unlikely that a toddler would have the strength and dexterity to charge a slide on a handgun. I've known grown females that didn't have the upper body strength to rack a slide on a semi-automatic handgun and have had to, as a consequence, use revolvers. For me, in my situation, I also had a law enforcement-style gun holster, which had a locking mechanism on it, where you had to really know how to work the locking me- mechanism 
and draw the gun out a certain way in order to get the gun out of the holster. But just like with a shotgun, you can get a quick access, say, for the handgun. Now, it won't keep the gun from being stolen during a burglary like a full-scale gun safe might, but it will keep toddlers out. I know Jared already knows about the quick access safe, but I'm also going to send an Amazon link for Jack to put in the show notes for quick access safes. And again, this is not necessarily one I'm recommending, but just so you can get an idea of what I'm talking about. And lastly, here's some advice for you when your toddlers get just a little bit older. You can have a discussion with them and let them know that they can see the guns whenever they want. Just let them know that they have to ask first and that you will set a time aside for them to see it. Even if you're busy at the time and can't show them right then, that you will make time and sit down with them and show them the firearms and let them get to know them. By doing this, it removes the curiosity and that sense that they need to sneak to go see the guns. And I can't remember if I first heard that on TSP from Jack or I got in law enforcement training. I don't really remember. But either way, I think it's really good advice. Jake, thanks for sending in that question. I hope my answer was in some way helpful to you. And Jack, I'd love to hear if you have any additional thoughts on this one. Um, starting out when Dan said he wasn't sure if he heard from me about making sure that kids always know that they can see guns, they can touch guns, they can learn about guns, they can have guns uh, as part of their life, they can get questions answered and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I've definitely said that. I don't know that that's where Dan got it though, because, <clears throat> excuse me, that is, is definitely a very well-known and probably not practiced enough uh, component to children and guns. Kids want to see what they can't see. They want to touch what they can't touch. If it's forbidden, it's interesting. If it's available, you know, the interest, if it's there, is completely genuine and it's not raw, stupid curiosity, okay? Um, one of the things I have... And I'm not suggesting anybody do this. I think this is very subjective to the individual. But I have uh, my Crossman 392 pellet rifle. And there are no pellets that could be accessed uh, near it. But it sits outside in my dining room, living room area, up against the wall at all times. My grandkids are here. It is not a firearm. It is a pellet gun. It can certainly cause harm, except it won't. Not to them. My granddaughter couldn't lift the damn thing. My grandson probably barely can. If you've ever pumped one of those guns, you know that you're not going to get a lot of air into it as a six-year-old. And plus, then you'd have to find the pellets, etc. Why do I do this? It's a gun that they cannot harm themselves with. They would hurt themselves with it more by dropping it on their foot or hitting themselves in the face with it rather than firing it. It's just not in the cards at this age to do so. It's a gun, though. It sits there. It does nothing. And you know what? My my granddaughter doesn't know what it is yet. She's too young. My grandson doesn't even bother noticing it. It's just there. That's just the thing Grandpa has. And we go out sometimes and we shoot his toy guns. He's got a little cap gun, like an old-fashioned, old-school one with the red cap rings that spins around, and you have to load it like a single, like a break, like a break open, um, like a Nagant pistol, not a Nagant rifle, Nagant pistol. Um, and uh, he likes that. And occasionally, I let him shoot the airsoft guns. Um, he's just about ready to get his daddy's BB gun. 
his daddy's first little Daisy 105 pal. I won't give it to him, though. It'll be to his dad. Not just because I think his dad should make that call, but I want his dad to be able to, one to say, you know, even though it's sitting here in my closet, uh, to be the one to hand it to him. I just think that's the cool thing to do. And when that happens, I think he's still too young to trust running around outside with birds and stuff like that. Um, you know, by the time he's, he's ready for that. And I think he's right there at this point. Uh, so he'll have to be supervised with it. He, but when he comes and says, Papa Jack, I want to go shoot the BB gun. Well, we'll go out and shoot it. And as he earns trust, he'll get a little bit, a little bit more freedom. And I think those types of things go a long way toward not playing with guns that they shouldn't play with. Because I know I'm going to be hated for this statement. But I do think there is a point in time that in general is prior to an 18th birthday for most people. If they come up in a gun family and they are trained in the proper and responsible use of firearms, where if there is a need for defense of life, that that individual is ready to be trusted with that responsibility. And I think that number changes with the individual. But I promise you, if you would have tried to break into my grandparents' house when I was 14 years old and living there, and I thought you were going to hurt somebody, I would have shot your ass. And I know some people think like a 14-year-old should never have the ability to go access a gun without, you know, locks and supervision. All And I think in many instances that's true. But I think that parents have to evaluate these things subjectively and that the time to begin training is at the time interest comes. When there's any interest, training must begin on the proper, safe handling of a gun. And a hit-you-in-the-head, two-by-four-between-the-eyes realization that these are dangerous, that we do not play with them. When I gave my son that first BB gun, I told him, I said, there is a, a hundred million to one chance, Matthew, if you do something stupid with this, you could actually kill somebody with it. Now, it might be a ten million to one with that damn thing. But it's, you shoot somebody in the face and they can step in front of a car. I mean, it's not like it's impossible, right? But definitely you could hurt somebody with it. We don't want to do that. And if you want to progress and you want the opportunity to, to shoot larger guns and bigger guns and real guns later... And we need to treat this one like it's my 3006. And it's amazing to me that when it, you know, once children are, you, you can't have that conversation with a three year old. You can't. I've not met one yet anyway. But you know, by the time they're seven, eight years old, that if you will treat that young man or young woman like a young man or young woman instead of like a complete child, when you bring serious things, like this is fun shit. You can go play with your ball. You can run around and throw a rock at the tree. I don't care. But when we do this, and you have those two sides to you, this is play, this is a game, this is fun, this is okay. But when we cross this switch, now it's, it's serious. And we don't horse around, we don't mess. And it's amazing. And if you're always a hard ass, it doesn't work. And if you're never a hard ass, it doesn't work. But when you have the ability to have the other side, like most of the time you're just dad, mom, grandpa, grandma, whatever. But when there's a certain point where you take a seriousness to it, because you're not always that way, they take it seriously and they understand what it's really all about. And again, I think that we all have to make our own decisions about that. As far as the physical man, you know, physical security, I think Dan did a great job with that. I mean, my big thing is. 
you could find a gun, but you'd have to find the. I mean, you keep stuff separated. You you don't you keep ammo secured here, gun secured there. But you do have to have those guns that are there for defense, and they have to be deployable rapidly, or they're not useful. They're just not useful. My my number one way to have a sidearm that's deployable though is to carry it as often as possible, to have it off your person as seldom as possible. And if you do that, your child is not going to be playing with your gun when it's you know your appendix carrying it or carrying it uh, strong side on the side of your back or, or weak side on a, a shoulder holster. They're just not going to be messing with it because it's in your possession. That that that's my primary advice on on sidearms. And, and next up, I have my segment for the day. I'm going to try to be brief on it because it's a complex issue, but it's this decision by Jeff Sessions to overturn the Obama policy, basically looking the other way on the enforcement of marijuana laws from the federal level uh, for states that had legalized it or normalized it or decriminalized it one way or another, specifically states that had done things like issued licenses for dispensaries and grow houses and stuff like that. And, and before Obama did that... Um, You know, some of these places had already been set up and were raided by federal government uh, enforcers. And basically, the Obama policy was, we're not going to do this. We're just, we're just not going to interfere. We're just going to stay out of it. And I'm hearing from a lot of people about it, and I think everybody's expecting me to flip my shit at Jeff Sessions, and, and my response is, of course, that's what he did. There's, there was no reason to believe he would have done anything else. This is a guy that about 10 years ago said, marijuana is not used by good people. Good people do not use marijuana. I'd like to smack him in his big-eared, balding head. I really would. But I don't fault him for doing what he's always said he would do. He did kind of bullshit and lie during his confirmation hearings when presented with this issue. But in the end, you know who Jeff Sessions is. And instead of really worrying about this, everybody's worried about making the guy to be a racist and a bunch of stupid bullshit during his confirmation hearings. So then this kind of thing happens. But it's not really his fault. Well, how can you say it's not his fault? He's the one doing it. Okay, he's in, he is a federal employee. He is the chief law enforcement officer of the United States of America. And there's federal law that says this stuff's not supposed to happen. I don't agree with it, but he has every right in his position, and some would say even should be mandated in his position to enforce the laws, not just the ones he likes and doesn't like. We can argue that, and I actually think getting the executive to enforce a law is one of the many checks and balances in the system, not just the limited checks and balances in the system they teach us about in high school. But it amazes me that all of a sudden liberals have discovered states' rights. You brought up states' rights to a liberal before yesterday, and geez, you were a racist, no matter what you were talking about. But now all of a sudden it's a states' rights issue. This is not a states' rights issue because no state has had the balls to challenge the federal government about it. The states have been cowards. Every state law in regard to this has basically said, we're not going to enforce it and we're going to let you do it if X, Y, and Z are met. And some of those laws are pretty good and some are awful. The one that just happened in California, everybody thinks legalized marijuana. The state has way more authority to prosecute people because of marijuana than they ever did before. You can check into it yourself if you want to see what I mean. And all the tax money they're going to raise goes to enforcing the laws. Doesn't do anything to help orphans with flags or any some shit like that. But, but that's not the issue. The issue here is none of these states have passed a law that says the state of Colorado hereby states that federal law in regard to marijuana produced, consumed, and exchanged within the borders exclusively of the state of Colorado does not apply within our borders. 
None of them have had the balls to do anything like that. And until one of them does, it's not a state's rights issue. A state's rights issue isn't, well, the state says you can and the federal government says you can't. Because constitutionally, again, not what I want. Principles over preference. If we're going to live in a constitutional republic, then we follow the freaking constitution. Especially the people that are sworn to uphold and defend it and are tasked with doing so. Okay? And it, that would include the Supreme Court. So I don't care how liberal you are as a Supreme Court justice, you should be disbarred if you would vote to overturn this decision by the Attorney General because it's nothing to do with the law. It's a policy. And executives get to set policy. And federal law is clear. I don't agree. It doesn't matter that I don't agree with it. Federal law is clear. These things are illegal according to federal law. And the federal government has every right to enforce that law until such time as the power is taken from them. I think our National Congress and Senate, they're cowards too. There's no doubt the majority of Americans are opposed to this war on cannabis. None. I know some of you out there, I, mean, I think it's evil. I don't give a shit if you think it's evil. I'm telling you 70%, 80% or more of people, not, this is not a 49-51 issue, want this shit stopped. But they don't have the balls to do it either. And again, this whole thing, it's a state's rights issue. There's no, there's no challenge by the state to the federal law yet. The question is, will any of these states have the balls to do it? And will people that all of a sudden are a fan of the concept of states' rights start following principles over preference, or will they stick to preference over principles, and you're only for it when it fits your agenda? And that's the reason we're in this mess, folks. Because people don't care. They don't care how they get what they want. They just care that they get what they want. They're fine with circumventing the Constitution if it fits their agenda. But they're not fine with following the Constitution when it opposes their agenda. Cowardice. It is time for this to end. But if you want it to end and you want to be an activist at the state level, you need your state to take up nullification, not normalization and circumvention. If you want it done at the federal level, you got to start putting pressure on the, on the Congress and the Senate. Now, why won't they do it? Mostly they won't do it. There's a few of them that are live, you know, from like super conservative places where they could lose their jobs. Very few, though. Very few. The real reason is because they get paid. They get paid through lobbying. And who do they get paid by? In this case, they get paid by Big Pharmaceutical and the prison industrial complex. And those lobbies, and, and by the way... The alcohol lobbies. Those three lobbies have poured billions into stopping this. Billions. And the only way to make it right is an actual law rescinding federal enforcement of marijuana. It's the only way. It's the only way with principle over preference. Because otherwise you get what you got right now. When the executive changes, when the bureaucrat changes, the policy changes. This is the same thing I said about net neutrality. When you let the bureaucrats set the law, the law changes with the bureaucrat. In the case of net neutrality, they gave themselves an authority they didn't have. In the case of marijuana prohibition at the federal level, they chose not to enforce a law that had already been passed. It's exactly the opposite and the same problem at the same time. But there is no case for state sovereignty here. None. Because the case has to be made by the state, and no state has had the cojones to make the case. No state has said, we won't let you arrest our citizens 
for the applicable use here within our state under the grounds that it was grown in the state, produced in the state, managed in the state, legislated by the state, and didn't leave the state's borders. It's not your business. Get out. None of them have had the balls to do it. You can blame Jeff Sessions, but it's not Jeff Sessions that put this law in place. It's not a defense of him. Again, I'd like to slap his big-eared, balding head right in the back of the head till he has a big old red mark on the back of his head. I really think the guy's a prick. You know? I really do. But I cannot make a principled argument against his constitutional authority to enforce this law. Because I will not put my preference over my principles. If you want to get somewhere in society, that's what we need to get the average person being willing to do. And then we'll actually face the issue instead of call each other names or instead of using whatever leverage we can to try to get what we want with no understanding of the long-term implications thereof. Just my thoughts. Okay, so it is now time to talk to you about T-SPAS. T-SPAS.com is the way you can support the Survival Podcast without spending any money out of your own pocket that you weren't going to spend anyway because whenever you do your online shopping, just check out T-SPAS.com first and see if there's something there that you need or you can get on over to check out deals of the day over at Amazon, what have you. But as long as you're going to T-SPAS.com first, you help support the show no matter what you do. Now, I have items of the day for review for you today. And today I have a book called A Night at Rays by Doc Hansen. Doc Hansen lives close to me. How close? I can see his property from my window. Doc Hansen is actually named Dennis. He lives just to the rear of my property. And when I look out my window right now to my back fence, the stuff on the other side of it is his six-acre little ranch here in Texas right next to my own. And he's an interesting guy. This is a guy that served two tours of duty as a Navy corpsman attached to Marine Recon in combat. Two years back-to-back. Two tours back-to-back. Saving lives. Devoted his entire life to, to medicine, uh, served as things like clinical department head, director of nurses, and an administrative uh, assistant administrator of clinical operations, and as a hospital administrator eventually, and a CEO. He was a senior partner in a medical consulting firm, and he's directed and operated several home health and hospice agencies. So you guys put a lot of time into service to his fellow man. He's also been a uh, teacher, associate professor at uh, the university, and he's written a couple books. The book I have for you today, again, is called A Night at Rays. And this book is told from the, the vantage point mostly of a fictional character that's a, a uh, U.S. Navy uh, chief and uh, retired and at this place called Rays. And it goes into a lot of really cool stuff. There's some things in it that are fictional, but yet might have more truth than some people are comfortable with. Like, who financed the Nazi party and Hitler's rise to power? Could President Truman have prevented the Vietnam War? Did Nazi war criminals escape to Indochina? Was Ho Chi Minh recruited by Wild Bill Donovan's OSS? And did President Eisenhower set up to gall for failure at the MBN Fu? The way Doc puts it in the summary is there's history and then there's history. A night it raises the ladder. And uh, I'll tell you, I think, again, there might be a little bit more truth in this than some would be comfortable with. And it is a fun read. It'll only take you a few hours to read. I think you'll enjoy it. And, guys, it's a paperback book that you can add to your library. It only costs about 10 bucks. And, frankly, again, this man's my neighbor. He's a good guy. He's written a good book that you'll enjoy. 
And it might be worth picking up a copy just to say thank you to someone. And I'm not even just talking about military service. I'm talking in life that's done so much to help others and is basically living in his retirement now and, and having the courage to step out as a freaking author when he's, all, when he's in his late 70s. That's pretty cool. Check him out today. Again, the book is called The Night at Rays by Doc Hansen, my next-door neighbor. Uh, that brings us to our song of the day. The song of the day is by John Lennon. It's called Borrowed Time. It's actually a reggae-sounding song written on a holiday in Bermuda, and it was inspired by uh, Bob Marley's Hallelujah Time. And Lennon always felt that he was living on borrowed time, and he thought that's what we were all doing, even though most of us don't like to face it. Ironically, um, this was uh, written in 1980, and later that year in December... John Lennon was killed. His borrowed time ran out. I think there's a good message in this song for all of us to understand that our time is borrowed. Um, Yoko Ono said that John Lennon said his time was precious and was aware that his life could be cut short. That's true for all of us. We're all living on borrowed time, so I think we should make the most of it. You've got a weekend ahead of you. Good thing to think about how you're going to make that happen. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
you know, like, what to wear, very serious, like, you know. Am I gonna get rid of the pimples? Does she really love me? All that crap. But now I don't bother about that shit no more. I know she loves me. All I gotta bother about is standing up.